And uh, now, if you um, would do me a favor, would you open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Uh, We're going to have a little bit of a group interaction here for a moment. This can get dangerous. There's um, quite a few of you that I don't know. Um, So I'm going to give you a scenario, and then you can tell me your answer. Um, Who will you be voting for? Bernie Sanders. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We're not. We're not going to do that. That's a joke. Relax. Are you listening? Good. Um, I'd like to talk about Donald Trump for a while. I can do that. What was your first job? Get it in your brain. Got got in your brain your first job. And uh, rather than you all shouting at once, I'm going to start on this side because um, at last service, everybody shouted at once. I didn't catch anything. So um, somebody over here, what was your first job that you had? The winner with the most interesting job gets an awesome prize. So you got somebody? I'm sorry, what? The Gap. Oh, trash. What's that? Bailing hay. Bailing hay. That almost competes with the first service. We had uh, somebody afterwards came and told me that in Germany, she um, uh, knitted the socks, uh, holes for, uh, for people who had holes in their socks. Apparently, all their socks were hand-knit with wool, and so she was the closer of those. That's good. So, failing, hey, you're the most respectable one yet of the two of you, okay? Um, anyone in the back over here? Oberweiss, for all you lactose intolerant people, thanks for nothing. Um, all right, you guys. Selling formal wear, like gowns and suits and ties and all that kind of stuff, all right? Nice. Child labor. Love it. Good. I didn't hear what you said, but... Wow. How old were you? Like three? That's a good job. I like that. All right, we'll go to this side. Yeah, Linda. What? A corn detasseler. Are those little fuzzy things or like the stringy things that you don't want to eat? Those? Okay, that's good. That's good. Anyone else in this? Yeah, yeah. I honor you. I honor you. That's good. That's good. All right. Peanut gallery over here. Nice. How old were you? 25? (laughs) <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I love it. My first job, uh, it was 1991, Christmas. My brother gave me a Christmas present, which he was forbidden to give me by my dad, apparently. And he handed to me my, his paper route. And uh, at 11 years old, I had a paper route. I want to be clear, I made serious bank. I was, I was the kid who, no joke, at 12 years old, had no less than a couple hundred dollars cash on him at all times, right? So just to be very clear, I was that kid. And so um, the paper route was seven days a week. And then I've shared this with, I think, the church a couple times. But um, on Saturday mornings, like 1.30 in the morning-ish, my mom would get up and she would wake me up at 11 years old, 12 years old, all the way from 11 to 16. And uh, she'd wake me up and we would go get the newspaper from the whatever place you went to. um, And then we would deliver the papers, be home, usually by, I don't know, I'm guessing three, four, five in the morning, something like that. And then we'd go back to bed, and, and, and then the next morning, Sunday morning, my dad would wake me up, usually around 1.30, and uh, if we could get done by 5 a.m., you know, the Sunday morning papers, they were really thick, and they had all the comics and advertisements. We had to stuff them all, get them all ready. If it rained, it took even extra time. And, and, uh, and so then my dad would um, come home, and, and uh, he'd go to sleep. We'd wake up at like 8 or 9 and go to church. How many of you would do that for your kids? 
Anybody? Yeah? My parents, oh, you guys. I was gonna say, the rest of you, we're all better, we all have better parents than you guys. You guys are awesome. Yeah, Lewis is, all right. Um, so very few people would, and I'll be honest with you, I, would, I will not do that for my kids. I love my sleep far too much. Like, it is sacred in my home. And uh, my parents were, apparently were trying to instill something really profound in us. And I remember I would um, uh, go to church, and then our friends would say, hey, how you doing? I'd be like, oh, I'm so tired because I worked all night. What did you do, you broke kid? I mean, I was so proud of my work. But then my parents thought... Um, Michael needs more work. So when I was 16, I got my driver's license. That's when they stopped driving me, but I did that paper out for a few more years. Uh, I started working at Applebee's, and first job where I had a real like boss, okay? And uh, I walk in, and I fill out my application, and uh, I freeze. I can't remember what the name of the job is that I'm applying for. So the manager, I so vividly remember him, uh, he comes in, and he's like, hey, what job are you applying for? I'm silent, and, and I'm, looking, I'm looking around, I'm like, oh, that job where you stand there, people come in, like, how many is in your party? Three, here's a seat. Would you like kids' menus? What is the name of that, right? So I freeze, and, uh, and then I'm looking around, and he's like, and the name? And uh, so I'm thinking, hostess, but no, I'm, I'm a dude, okay. So then I, I can't find the word, so I'm like, waitress, waiter, hostess, and I look at him and say, hoster. He's like, you're a complete imbecile. He's like, do you mean host? And I'm like, yes, that's, that's the one, that's the one, that's the one. And uh, so began my journey into employment with bosses. I worked at Best Buy, Papa Vino's Italian restaurant, um, got to work at a plumbing company, all different kinds of places. And uh, God was really good to me. I don't know anything about plumbing, don't worry. I'm like, it's all out of my brain. Um, and so God was really good to me as a young kid to teach me how to work. And my parents truly, truly wanted to instill in every single one of their four boys, me being the youngest and most special and best looking of all of them, um, and most intelligent, right? Uh, just in case my brothers are listening, I want to make sure they're clear on that. Um, but they wanted to make sure that from a very young age that we developed an incredibly strong work ethic. And this work ethic has grown to shape and to form my perspective of my entitlement generation peers, okay? So like growing up, when my friends weren't working, I got all judgy. I'm like, you're not working? What are you, lazy, right? And these are the kind of things that went through my brain and I got real judgy with them. And, but then as I grew older, I realized that like there, there are some, we'll call it pandemics um, in, in American culture that are raising kids up that have no idea how to work under a boss or to work at all. And, uh, and so I'll just tell you one of my big wins as we talk about work this morning, a biblical theology of work, how to think about it, how to live rightly in this area, area of our life, is I have one big, huge goal, that we would raise up a generation of 100-plus kids in our Village Kids ministry who understand how to work and enter the work culture of our world to bring Jesus into that and to change the world for Jesus Christ to kill a generation of entitlement in the following generation. May the children of the church be the hardest workers, the most disciplined, and honor Jesus Christ uniquely and distinctly from the rest of our generation. Now, you might be saying, um, I work hard. I've raised three, four, two, eight, one kids, whatever, and they're awesome. Well, one day you're going to have grandkids, and you're going to have great-grandkids. Um, somebody once said, what is taught to the next generation is assumed by the following, and it's not repeated by the third generation. 
Because we teach our children something, we take it for granted, and then our children don't repeat that. It's a common, uh, we'll just say, historical pattern. And uh, I want to see that change. And we want to raise kids that know how to actually work and be a functional part of society. And so before we get into all this, I have to develop for you a theology of work. Then we will get into Ephesians 4.28. We will get there. Um, And so number one, you need to understand this about work. God works. Okay? Is God lazy? No. So I want you to read Exodus with me. Listen, um, Exodus chapter 20, verse 9 through 11. Six days you shall what? Labor and do all your work. So already is God commissioning work? The answer is yes. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. Four, in six days, what did the Lord do? The Lord made. Is God a worker? Yes. And in the story, the parallel between God and us is that God labored or worked for six days, and then he rested on the seventh day. Now, the reason he rested is not because God got tired and needed a nap. Somebody give me an amen on that one, okay? He rested to show us as a paradigm, as a living picture of what we need to put into the rhythm of our lives, which is rest. So the Lord made, verse 11, heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he made it holy. Number one, you have to understand God works. Number two is that God told us to work. I want you to read this passage from Genesis, and I want you to notice something. This is before the fall. Here's what he says. The Lord God took the man. Where's the woman? She's not been created yet. He took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to what? Work it and keep it. So God, before he even gave him a wife, puts him in a garden and says, work this thing, keep this thing, take the chaos of the garden and bring order into this, sort of like how I took the chaotic, formless, and void world and I brought all of this together to bring life and purpose to it. You take the earth, you subdue it, you dominate it, and you bring beauty and order out of it. He says, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. So right off the bat, we see that work is commanded by God. Work is not a result of the fall. Don't raise your hands if you hate your job, but how many of you hate your job, okay? Many of you, it's exhausting, it's annoying, you don't feel like you have purpose, you have a really terrible boss, some of you. Your coworkers drive you nuts for some of you, right? You get this. Uh, And yet, here's what we see. Work is fundamentally a part of being human because we're made in the image of God he works, and therefore he's made us to work. Pop, like, just big, like, burst your bubble here. You're not going to sing in heaven forever. Did you know that? You're going to be working. You're going to be working, and that's going to be good, and it's going to be satisfying. It's going to be meaningful. It's going to be purposeful. It is going to provide for you. Um, it's going to be a very meaningful place of work because work is not a result of the fall. Work is a pre-fall mandate, and we will be about the act of subduing the new creation, and so this is a good thing. So work is good. God told us to work. Number three, we are created for this. In our spiritual and physical DNA, is the propensity to work. And when we don't do this, we become our worst selves. We are created to work hard. Let's go to number four. We're created to work hard. 
We are not created to be lazy. Why? Because God is not lazy. We are created to, at the end of a good long workday, to experience purpose and satisfaction. That we have been able to do something bigger than ourselves for the glory of God, and we're able to meet the tangible needs of the people in our life. We are created, number five, to work hard for family, church, and society. We're created that our work would not just be about me, but I'm created in such a way that I thrive in my work when my work benefits someone other than me, my immediate family, when it benefits the church, and it benefits society for good. This is part of how God has infused the nature of work into our spiritual and physical DNA. Number six, work is a moral behavior. Need to hear me. To willingly not work when needed and capable is sin. To willingly not work when needed and capable is sin. If you resign your life to sitting on your rear, that is not using your body and your energy for the purpose for which God made it. Now, we're going to talk about different things. What if I'm retired? What if I'm disabled? Um, What if I have more than enough money to spend for the rest of my life? Can I just sit on my rear, retire, buy a vacation home, and never talk to anybody ever again? Can I do that? Well, in theory, you could, but should you, that's what we're going to try to get to. Number seven, sin made work difficult. Someone give me an amen. Listen to Genesis chapter three. This is a result of the fall. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. This is why work is hard. This is why work is difficult. We labor, and there is a resistance between the ground, metaphorically speaking, and us. We have to fight to get it to work for us. Sin causes the ground to work against us, but we enter into the chaos, we subdue it, and we dominate it, and we bring order out of the chaos, and we make the ground work for us. That's what we we do. He goes on and says, Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. What separates human work from all other animals, is that animals work to survive. The beaver builds a dam, and he doesn't say, look how beautiful my dam is. Isn't that so pretty? Guys, check it out. Come on, check out my dam. Look how excellently I made this one. This is going to do on a magazine. It's going to be awesome, right? Beavers don't do that. They're like, eat, eat, build, live, survive. Like, if they could talk, those would be the words that come out of their mouth. Birds build nests. Why? They don't build it, and they're not competing with other birds. Like, my nest is prettier than your nest. I have more purpose in my life than you have, right? Birds build nests. Birds do what they do to survive. We humans are so distinct. We work for purpose and significance. Like um, some of you, you have a job and you feel like, I don't understand the purpose of what I'm doing. No animal works and says, I don't get the purpose. I need a grander narrative for which to fit my life in, right? It's not the way animals think, but it's how you think because you are uniquely, distinctly made in the image of God, and this affects how you work. In fact, work is so important to God that if you don't do this most basic, fundamental thing, 
you get, hear me, nothing out of life. Because the requirement for all the good things that you could do in life require work. Do you want to be generous to somebody? What do you have to do? You have to work for money. Do you want to eat? What do you need to do? Work for money. Do you want to give stuff away? Do you want to have people over to your house? Do you want to do all these big things? You need to work for money. I want to read to you what one commentator wrote. This is so well said. Monkeys don't write symphonies. Monkeys don't grow gardens. Only men write symphonies and grow gardens. And he's referring to mankind when he says that, FYI. Only men paint beautiful paintings. Only men build massive edifices. Edifices is edifices <laughs> that are mind buildings, that are mind-bogglingly, mind-boggling achievements of engineering and brilliance and creativity. This is the dignity of what it means to work in the image of God. This is our dignity. This is part of the nobility of being a man. We have been given, according to Genesis 126, dominion over the earth. Isn't that cool? We are fundamentally, uniquely distinct from all creation. And you can see why this is moral. Because to work is to exhibit the image of God more fully in us. It is one of the greatest, most fundamental goods we can do so that if we don't teach our kids to work, they will never image God the way God has entire, made them to image him. I want to take a moment, I want to just have a brief word because some of you, um, in fact, a few of you in this room, I know personally, you are out of work and you would love to work. And the repercussions in your life right here and right now are tangible you're watching your bank account, what's left of it, go down the drain. Some of you, you've accrued a lot of debt in the process, and you're trying to figure out, how do I navigate this season? And I want to just give you just a quick word. Um, we're going to talk about men and women and work in a, in a little bit here. But in the, in the soul of a man, to not be able to provide for his family is gut-wrenching on one of the deepest, most fundamental levels of masculinity. It's hard for women too, don't get me wrong, right? right? I'm just saying that there is something unique and terribly frustrating and discouraging in the soul of a man who cannot find either a job or adequate income. And I just want to tell you, when, when you see in our prayer email that comes out every week and you see so-and-so is out of work, you go to work for them and you start praying because we are made to be providers. But sometimes the, the, the economy or the world or our industry do not permit it in the way that it did in the past. And so you need to go to bat for people who are struggling to get jobs because getting a job is the most fundamental part of being an adult human functional in society. And so we all want to be that, especially if we're a follower of Jesus, and it is a good and it is a right thing. And so as we get into, we're going to get to Ephesians 4. Don't worry, we're going to get there. But um, I'll open up to Ephesians 4, verse 28, and i got to set some context. Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, it's all about theology. It's all about how you think. This is the truth about salvation and Jesus and union with Christ and justification and how you're saved, all this kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's how you should think. It's theology 101, if you will. And chapters 4 through 6 are the so what's. Okay? In light of what we know, here's what I want you to do. Now that we know how you're saved and why you're saved, here's what saved people do. This is what the Christian life looks like. And so um, what we find is that chapters four through six are super practical. And then especially at the end of chapter four, the beginning of chapter five, Paul starts listing out these different things. And if you kind of stop, it can feel like these like so what's 
are really just disconnected. He gives a whole bunch of them, don't do this, do that, don't do this, do that. And here's his general approach. He says, don't do X. X is not fitting for a Christian. But here are the things I want you to do. And then he tells you why I want you to do them, which I love. He doesn't just say, be a good boy, don't be a bad boy. He actually gives us a moral, bigger picture framework to root this in and base this in. And so he compares this to what it's called as the putting off and the putting on. So if you are in jail and you're wearing your orange jumpsuit all the time, when you get out of jail, do you keep that orange jumpsuit on? The answer is no, because you're going to have a really hard time getting a job if you're wearing that around everywhere. So your obligation, your opportunity is take off the old self, take off what you're doing here and put on the new self, which is being transformed into the image of Jesus. Basically, here's what Christians do, here's what non-Christians do, and here's why we do it. So I want you to get that. And so, for example, um, don't use your anger in ways that hurt people, but you should build people up. Why? Because we are a body. We are one body, one with each other. Um, you don't use your words as gangrenous words that go out into the souls of people and rot them, right? Do use your words for building up. Why? Um, because we want to give grace to those through how we speak. We want to give opportunities for God to move in their life. Got it? So here's what we're going to do. Ephesians 4.28, simple verse, so much in there. We're going to do the don't, we're going to do the do, and then we're going to do the why. And we're going to get in there. We're going to see how this all works. So here's what he says. Point number one. Is this my money? And by my money, I don't mean, okay, Michael, I know all our money is God's money. Actually, I don't mean that at all. It's true. Um, But a theology of work um, comes with a theology of ownership, that God's people also are owners of stuff. And we are stewards of this stuff. Now, here's what thievery is. Thievery is when I go take your stuff against your will, or maybe without you knowing it, and I use it for my own good, that's called stealing. So here's what he says. Let the thief no longer steal. Most of you are thinking, I'm not a thief. Kudos to you. Some of you are. Some of you steal a lot. Some of you take from someone else something that is theirs, that they worked for. You take it without permission or against the rules allotted, and you use it for yourself you use it for your own good, and you are stealing. Some of you are trying to stop stealing, and it's small things. Some of you cannot go into a store without putting something in your pocket and walking out. Uh, my hope is that this is not the majority of you, but here's what we find. In Ephesus, I think this is a strange group of people to pull out. Right? He talks to angry people. There's a lot of angry people in church. He talks to people who use their words in a negative way. Can I get an amen? There's some people in church who don't use their words well. But why, why, do, why does he draw out thieves? What this does is it actually gives us a clue into the kind of people who are coming to faith in Jesus. The kind of people in Ephesus who are ripe to hear the gospel and to trust in Jesus. Apparently, thieves are coming to Jesus in the city of Ephesus. And let's just talk about two kinds of people who might be thieves. Number one are slaves. Um, slaves were known and prone in that time to steal in large and small ways from their slave owner. And uh, we uh, know this from the book of Philemon. Anybody ever heard of the book of Philemon? One little chapter in the New Testament. And uh, Philemon is a slave owner, and Onesimus is the slave. Apparently, Onesimus stole money from Philemon or something 
and ran. And Onesimus is like, ah, where do I go? They're going to kill me. So he goes to Paul, who is a safe haven for him. And in, in chapter one, well, there's only one chapter, but in chapter one, verse 18, here's what Paul writes to Philemon. If he, Onesimus, has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of you owing me even your own self. Apparently, maybe even Philemon came to Christ through Paul's preaching. Imagine Paul being like, I brought you into this spiritual world and I'll take you out. You know? And so like, basically, Paul uses his spiritual leverage over him to say, I will pay back Onesimus' theft, okay? Um, and you, you, you are to forgive him and bring him back, and you are to treat him, treat him well. The other category of people would be seasonal laborers. And so they'd be working, and their produce would come in, their harvest would come in, and they would have half of the year. And so they would make a living through the other half of the year by stealing. This is a common thing, apparently. And so Paul just kind of enters into this and says, look, all you who are thieves, there's a bunch of you here. Stop it. This is not what a Christian does. This is what non-Christians do, and their conscience is, very, is barely pricked. You as a Christian, you need to think differently. You need to live differently. Take off the orange jumpsuit and put on Christ, who works and thinks and lives very differently. Two, I think, just significant truths for the thief. Stealing is a reflection of Satan's character, which is why God hates it. Um, Jesus says, referring to Satan, the what thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Uh, It's not an accident that thievery is part and parcel with the nature and the character of Satan, um, who cuts corners, hates God, and God knows that if that spirit of thievery is in you, it will crumble your soul and make you worthless in society. And that's not what he wants for you. He wants you to come alive. He wants to bring life to you and wants to make you a functional member of society that brings God glory. But number two, stealing, no matter how vile or significant, can be forgiven. Get Jesus on the cross. Who's next to him? Two robbers, two thieves. Isn't that ironic? One is, well, they're both hurling insults. One, doubly so. Another gets it in his brain. He's like, what am I doing? And Jesus looks at him and says, today, you are going to be with me in paradise. So I want to, I want to look at you as we, before we go to the second point and say, no matter how vile your theft was, is, or will be, Jesus can 100% right now completely forgive you. 100%. And when you asked Jesus to forgive you by faith, he also promises to forgive everything you will do. Because let's be honest, what we're finding in Ephesus here is that he has to tell them not to steal because apparently it's hard once you've lived this lifestyle for so long to put on Christ. And so it, sometimes it takes time. Sometimes these people struggle and he's coming alongside of them. And he's saying, look, I know you keep coming back to this, but this is not becoming or fitting of a follower of Jesus. This is becoming of a non-Christian and that's fine. But you now... You're clothed in Christ. You identify with Christ. He is your God. He is your master. So let's take this jumpsuit off. And sometimes we, like little kids, we run back to our our vices. And Jesus in patience says, I can forgive that too. If you ask me for forgiveness today, all past and your present and your future struggles with this are 100% forgiven. And now you have a helper. Give me that any day. Why people steal? Number one, pressure. As a kid, this is why I stole. 
My friends would just do it. Want to be cool. Want people to like me. Want to be dangerous. <laughs> but this is honestly for younger people. I find this is a huge incentive for why they steal. Number two, entitlement. I deserve this. I deserve this. Um, I don't need government help, um, but I can get more money by milking the system. And so I'm going to live off of that my whole life because I deserve it. Why? Because I exist. Anti-Christian. That is not how a Christian thinks. A Christian says, I work because I'm made in the image of God. I work hard. and I work for my family. I work for my church. And I work for, for the betterment of society because that is how God has made me to work. I deserve this. Number three, desperation. I need this. But let me just be clear. No one in this room is going to die if you don't steal that thing. Okay? None of you. You're not going to die. You may feel like you need it, but this is where God says, you need to now move from a thief to someone who trusts. Number four, I want this. And you see that this is just escalating and this... I want this, this greed, this idolatry where we are willing to compromise Jesus to get things that we want. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, I want you to just listen to this. Ephesians 5, 5 through 6, here's what he says. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, that'll be next week, so if you don't want to hear about that subject, then don't come back. If you're not here, we'll know why. Um, <laughs> or who is covetous, that is an idolater. I didn't put in the parentheses, by the way. That's in the text. So here's what's happening. When you say, I want this, you are functioning as a covetous idolater. And I want you to just let the text bear the weight for me. I don't have to be the angry preacher. This person has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let me translate. If you, knowing whether it is sexual immorality or covetousness, if you are belligerent in this and you persist despite knowing the word of God, there is no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God for you. Now, here's what I want you to understand. If you're struggling, that's good. I don't want to see necessarily perfection because Jesus nailed that down. I don't want to see belligerence because Satan has that down. We don't need any more of those. I want to see struggle. I want to see the sinful heart who's objectively now a son or daughter of God, but still struggling in the sin nature. I want to see the struggle. I want to see the wrestling match with God and with our flesh. That wrestling match is evidence that the spirit of God is in you. But here's what he's saying. He's saying this, that like, if you're going to be belligerent in this, then hear me, the Holy Spirit is not in you because the Holy Spirit does not permit belligerence in the face of clear teaching of God's word. Let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That's powerful. So he says, don't steal. If I could give you one big motivation, avoid the wrath of God. Trust in Jesus Christ. He took upon himself his body, soul, and emotions, the wrath of God for you in your place. 
for anyone who trusted him. Let him do that and now be in the wrestling match of killing the thievery in you and now being somebody who works for the glory of God. Here's a fun way to steal. Um, at work, flush the toilet multiple times and leave the faucet on. Use exorbitant amounts of toilet paper and then just leave the faucet on after work when you're the last person. How's that? Okay, good. Um, don't do that, by the way. That was a joke. You guys can relax. So serious. Number two, the village church is going to have a really high water bill this month. I'm just feeling it. Does my work bring God glory? Here's what he says. But rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Labor, I love this, means work to the point of weariness. That there is something in us that we are created to be satisfied when we work with our hands or with our mind or whatever you work with, um, that you are working to the point where you have worked hard and you have done a good job. Uh, I just want to draw your attention again to this. The first command given to Adam was to work. The first command to um, Adam and Eve, the husband and wife, it's to make babies, okay? But the first command to Adam, work. And so is this important to God? The answer is yes. And if it's important to God, then when we rear and raise up the next generation of kids, do we want to raise up a generation of entitlement? Or do we want to raise up a generation who works hard because God made them to do that? And when they complain and say, it's too hard, say, well, the cross was hard, deal with that. I'm kidding, don't say that. But that'd be a little good one-liner for you. I want to... I want to read to you 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6 to 15. I just want you to listen, um, and I want you to soak this in, because for me, when I was preparing this, this was one of the, this was the passage that really just rocked me and changed kind of how I view this. He says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is this important? The answer is, yeah, he's commanding in Jesus' name. I say, in Jesus' name, like that puts some seriousness to it. That you keep away from any brother, they, so they're calling themselves a Christian, who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. Here's what idleness means. Idleness means they could work, but they're not working. That's what idleness means in this context. Let me be clear with you. We're going to watch this play itself out. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Here's why the apostles, and Paul in particular, worked hard when he went into cities to preach the gospel. It was not so he didn't just like make them think he didn't want their money. He wanted to show them how men and women were supposed to work. And so he modeled that for them to show them he wasn't just doing this to be nice. He wasn't just doing this to like not make, you know, ruffle any feathers. I don't want to make it seem like we're taking your money. He did it to set an example to imitate. And we watch this go on. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. If you are able and it is needed for you to work, and you don't, what is it? Sin. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. This is, listen to this sentence. Not busy at work, but busy bodies. Lots of motion, no movement. Lots of movement, no income. And then he says this. Now such persons we commend and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. You can't control what non-Christians do. This is not about non-Christians, by the way. Okay? I want to be really clear with you. 
This is about a Christian's work ethic because how we work reveals the nature and the character of God. We work hard because God works hard. We work faithfully because God is faithful. And how we work, this is the most fundamental reality of human life. You cannot do anything if you don't have an income. Now, verse 13 says, as for you brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. If they won't work and they call themselves a Christian, listen to them. Take note of that person. Have nothing to do with him that, this is powerful, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, though. Warn him as a brother. So I want to talk about boys and girls and men and women. I want to raise children who change the world for Jesus. I can't control whether or not these kids trust in Jesus, but if they choose to trust in Jesus, I want to give them what they need so that they are equipped to change the world. And a lot of that happens in our home. If they can't work, they have failed in their first fundamentally human responsibility. So what if I have boys? I do. Wow, crazy. I do. Three-year-old. What if my three-and-a-half-year-old grows up and he never has a wife? Ever. 70 years old, single. It's not bad that that's, God calls some people to that. I want my son to grow up and to enter into the adult work world and change the world for Jesus. That's what I want him to do. I want him to be different than all the other employees. I want him to not complain like the other employees do. I want him to have a joyful and submissive heart. That's what I want. I want there to be something fundamentally different about this kid's soul because he understands how I work reveals the nature and the character of God. And here's what I'm, I'm learning with my kid is that this is just, I think, a more, say, bigger biblical principle. Boys thrive in their masculinity when they take care of something or someone of great value. So boys, we become, as little boys, as we grow up, we become our best selves and we have something or someone to take care of that is of great value. As we get older and we become men, here's how men thrive in our masculinity. We thrive when we take responsibility to lead and provide and protect someone of great value. This is why men live it up. They get married and have kids, and all of a sudden their life changes. But when their life changes, there's something deeply satisfying about no longer living as a child, but living as a parent who takes care of our kids. Something very powerful about that transition. Because God has made us to enter into a new season of maturity, whether it's you having kids or you having spiritual kids in the church, when we lead, provide, and protect someone of great value. Now, just let me be clear, because some of you are all like, are you saying that women don't lead? No, I'm not. I'm married to one of the best leaders and teachers that I know. I'm just saying this, that men uniquely are created by God in their spiritual DNA, that when they lead, provide, and protect, they thrive in their masculinity. And when they don't do that, they become entitled brats, right? Now, some of the complementarian argument on all this stuff, y'all got a bad rap. Why? Because you say, men only do this and women only do that. Women lead, provide, and protect. You talk to any mama bear in this room, they will tell you, I lead, provide, and protect. I'm not saying that women don't do that. Let's talk about girls. We've got two girls. I want to raise up two strong women who are capable of entering the workforce and being submissive, godly, awesome workers who change their work cultures for Jesus Christ. I don't care what they do. They could be CEOs or whatever. I want my children to grow up and do that because I don't know that my girls are going to get married. I don't know that. 
And I want to raise them to be able to enter into a workforce and do awesome things for the glory of God and to bring that work ethic that exalts Jesus Christ into that environment. But here's what I know. I know that little girls thrive in their femininity when they develop and nurture someone or something of great value. Now, ladies, are men supposed to nurture and develop? The answer is yes. I'm not saying men don't do that, so don't put words into my mouth. Stop it. What I am saying is that there's something unique inside the soul of a little girl that when she is developing and nurturing, she thrives in her femininity, that God has wired her to be deeply satisfied when she does these things. Now, I'm going to raise my boy to be nurtured and developing too, but I'm going to have a unique emphasis as I'm raising them and growing them. And this is why women thrive in their femininity when they are nurturing and developing people of great value. That is what makes us thrive, us, as if I'm a woman. <laughs> that is what makes femininity come alive inside of women. Now, does that mean you cannot lead, provide, and protect? No, I'm saying everybody probably should do a lot more of the other, but there is something fundamental inside the boys and girls and men and women that make us come alive. When you work for something, you have ownership. Doesn't ownership change the way you see your stuff, right? So when I was cleaning my parents' bedroom, meaning my bedroom that they owned, right? I was like, eh, whatever. Now I'm OCD. Like, kids, clean up your bedrooms. Kids, clean up this. There's stuff on the floor. Why are you doing this? Why did you let that thing happen? The floor is going to be scratched. I'm OCD now, apparently, about three things. Carpeting, wood floors, and my lawn. <laughs> right? I remember I'd go outside. I would dig holes. I'd rip out grass. You know, if I saw my kids ripping out grass, I'd be like, really? Do you know how long it took to get that grass green? Are you kidding me? Now I got to go back and fix it. Like, and it's interesting. When you own it, right, when you've paid for it, you have a different level of responsibility. It's why the first car I ever got from my dad, he gave to me, and I didn't change the oil, and the thing blew on me, and I completely ruined the car. But let me tell you, when I bought a car, I am OCD about oil and keeping it clean and all this other stuff um, that, honestly, when I didn't work for, it wasn't the same. I had my first guitar, and uh, it was given to me, and I loved it, and I sold it pretty quickly. But the first guitar I worked for, I was 12 years old, and I saw it. It was so beautiful. It was just lovely. I still have it. And uh, in my 12-year-old mind, I'm like, I am going to buy that thing. And so my parents made a deal that I could not take it home until I paid every single cent. So every week of guitar lessons, I'd show up, and I'd bring a quarter, a buck, five bucks, ten, it didn't matter, what, whatever I had on me. And it took me, I think it was like six months every week, and I'd ask the guy, Jim, I'd say, Jim, how close am I to getting to the goal? And he'd be like, you've got uh, $300 left. I'm like, ooh, you know, like, I can do this. But I worked for it. And you know what? I still have that guitar and even though I have a guitar that is worth 10 times as much as that one is, I love that guitar probably more. It has a deep emotional connection in my soul. Why? Because I own it. And I worked for it. And it was mine. Now, was it God's? All things are God's. But it was mine, right? <laughs> Let him labor doing honest, honest work. So if Paul stopped here, we could all go home, be a good boy, don't be a bad boy, and that would be the end of it. But then he gives us the why, and this is where we end. Does my work bring God the most amount of glory? Here's what he says. Why do we work? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The text is moving the thief and the laborer to something better than just feeding myself. So it starts with your family and moves to the church. And then it goes outside to those who are in need. Let me just say it this way. What brings God the most amount of glory is when your work culminates 
and generosity to the needy. That if your work just stops with you fulfilling your duty, your duty would be, I know you're thinking the word duty, that's funny, Pastor Michael, ha ha ha, get over it. <laughs> your duty is to provide for your family. That's not generosity. When you put food on the table, you're not like, I'm generous. No, you are dutiful, okay? When you give clothes to your kids, is that generosity? Please say no. When you tithe, is that generosity? The answer is negative. That is called duty. Generosity is when you go above and beyond your duty and you now find you have excess so that you can give to those who are in need. I want to maybe draw this out for you. Um, family, here's what 1 Timothy 5.8 says. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Okay, so assumed in this, are you supposed to provide for your family? The answer is yes. Um, Galatians 6.10. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are the household of faith. Are we supposed to give money to the church for the benefit of the church? Yes. The answer is that's duty, okay? But here's where we get to the needy. Anyone who is in need. This is where generosity, I believe, begins. So I'll give you some options. Somebody who is long-term homeless. You got to figure out what's safe and appropriate for your home and whatnot. But what if you have somebody who honestly life just happened and they have nowhere to go? Would you say they're in need? Because fundamentally, what sets Christian work apart from pagan work is that we don't work to get rich. We work and our work culminates in glory to God when we have enough to provide for our family, to provide for the church, and then we have access to provide for those who are in need in our life. That is where your work brings God the most amount of glory. That is why we get out of the cycle of paycheck to paycheck as much as we can, because work that brings God the most amount of glory has room on the edges, if you will, so that people who are in need can be benefited from your hard work. That's why. We'll go to another one, temporarily homeless. Hey, I don't have a place to go for, for a week. Um, could you help me out? Maybe you have an extra bedroom. Maybe all your kids can cram into one bedroom and somebody that is safe and appropriate that you know, obviously there, you can't just say, oh, there's a homeless person. Why don't you come live with me? Like you don't know them. Like they might kill you. They might not. It might change your life. You prayed about it. Someone's living in their car. Would you consider them needy? What if you have the resources to put them up in a hotel for a week? Just say, hey, here's the deal. You get in a hotel for a week, get yourself situated. What do you have for housing after that? You work with them and you help them get to a place where they can thrive. Disabled without benefits, is that needy? How do, you, how do you even provide? Jobless. As I said, we go to work in prayer and in building connections in our sphere of influence for those who are jobless. Is that needy? You better believe it. Family demands that are greater than income. What if there's a sickness? What if there are medical bills that are through the roof? You didn't see it. Is that person needy? I just, why do you have access so that your standard of living can constantly go up? Well, apparently, there does get to a point where we build a standard of living and we pray about that, but then we say, you know what? I'm not going to build my standard of living so big that I have no room on the edges to be generous to those who are in need. Enormous, unexpected bills in a short period of time. Life tragedy. Somebody you love passes away. Your world crumbles. Is that needy? And I could go on and on. Floods. The generous soul comes alive. The stingy soul withers and dies. 
I want to close with this passage of scripture in Leviticus 23, 22. Um, God in the law commands them to leave the edges of their fields um, unharvested so that the poor and the sojourners who come by can have something to eat. Which means that with what they had, they had enough to feed their families, feed their relatives, give to the temple, and they had enough left over that they could feed the poor. And just listen to this. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. And I love this line, I am the Lord, you are God. And by the way, if God ever gives you a command and stamps it with that, listen, listen. A couple questions. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to answer these here. I'm going to answer them on the Q&A podcast because we don't have time. Apparently, I'm like way over. You're welcome. It's hot in here. Um, what if I'm retired, volunteer? What if I have enough money to retire young and don't need to work? Work hard for Jesus for the rest of your life until your body does not let you. What if I'm disabled? There's no shame in not doing what you were unable to do. Can I get an amen from that one, please? What if my child won't work? Get third-party help. Here's the point. Work doesn't bring God the most amount of glory until it culminates in generosity to those in need. Amen, Village Church? Let's pray. Father, um, first, um, I just want to say thank you for being so good to us. You are so kind, so gracious. Lord, we admit there is a thief heart, a rebel heart in each of us that is covetous, God, we confess to you that that is sin. We also confess to you, we, we, want, we want to be covetous sometimes. It's fun. It's, it's addicting. And for God, in just these moments, we just want to say to you, we confess to you that we are sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. Our hearts are capable of wanting sometimes the most ridiculous things. And even though our minds know it's not good. But God, we want to be followers of Jesus who work with integrity And God, we want to do the best we can with our resources. And Lord, sometimes jobs close up and dry up and income gets very tight. God, thank you that in the church, there are those who have access for those who are in need. God, I thank you for our benevolent fund that our deacons run and just how practical that is that we can meet those needs real time. Just thank you for the privilege to be a part of a local church. We love you and are so grateful. Thank you, God, that when we work to the point of generosity, our souls come alive, and that is what we want. Everything you tell us to do brings life and health. And so, God, as we turn our eyes, we turn our hearts to the cross, thank you for Jesus. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.